Abbey Dental, sponsors of Women Today, for all aspects of today's dental care. Highly recommended throughout the Isle of Man. So we are talking New Year, and I'm guessing that over the past few days, many of us will have spent a fair amount of time reflecting on the past year. And if you look at a lot of the social media posts that there have been uh, over the past couple of weeks, it would seem 2018 was a rather tough one for many. But a new year gives us all a chance to put that behind us and look forward positively. And that really is the case for our studio guest today, um, who is Alison Lynch. Alison, it's brilliant that you could be with us at the start of this new year. Um, But we're going to go back to July of last year, really. um, And you received quite a devastating diagnosis. Just talk us through what happened. Um, Hi. Yeah, um, I did. I was at... I went to Nobles for a checkup following um, some surgery that I'd had earlier on, um, and I was under Mrs. Moroni at Nobles, and she found what she thought and believed to be cancerous growths. Um, a biopsy was taken on the third of July, and on the 9th of July she got in touch with me and gave me the devastating news that, yes, I did have cancer. I mean, it must be incredibly difficult to put yourself back in, in that situation. But I mean, how do you begin to piece together what you've been told and, and get through the next few days before your, your treatment started? It's devastating, um, you know, having to, having to tell people, um, having to you know, just try and, and piece your life together. Um, I'd started I'd started to plan my funeral. I'd, you know, gone to the bank to make my sole account into joint accounts. You just automatically think that that's it, your life has come to an end. And, you know, telling people, how do you tell your parents that you've got cancer? Um, how do you tell anybody? It's it, it's devastating. There was this, and it was a six week period between being told that I had cancer to seeing the uh, consultant in Liverpool, and that's those six weeks were terrible. I w- I wouldn't wish it on anybody. That was worse than any surgery or recovery or anything. But it was when you went to Liverpool and you saw the consultant that they said. You don't need to do things like planning your funeral. Yeah. You are going to survive this. Yes, they said it's it's treatable and it's curable. You know, stop making arrangements for for you not being here. It's not going to happen. It's really interesting, Alison, that that was immediately what you started doing. I mean, you just went straight to, to that Yeah, conclusion. I mean, I'm quite... I'm somebody who's... I'm quite an organised person and I like everything to be, you know, all the I's to be dotted and T's to be crossed. Um, and I'd, you know, try and leave as little for other people to do if I can do it. Um, but, you know, that wasn't the case. I didn't need to do that. Um, and I went under, I had two lots of surgery in Liverpool. Um, I was home between each one. Um, um, and, you know, both Nobles and Liverpool were fa- fantastic. So you had those um, those two major operations. Were you working during this time? Yes. Um, the company, I worked for Doula um, in that lovely Fortan building on Douglas Head. Um, and I've worked for them now for um, about 11 and a half years. And they were fantastic. Um, you know, just 
they said to me, take whatever time you need. Um, when you come back, um, come back, work what hours you want to work. If you don't want to work full time. Um, but I was I was paid while I was off. I was paid, <coughs> excuse me, paid full time by them. They were so supportive. I couldn't have done it, you know, without them or my family. And you mentioned that difficulty of telling friends and telling family. And some people actually choose not to go down that route. How important was it for you that people had an idea of what you were going through and supported you through it? Um, it's not something that it's not something that's easy to tell people. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but I think it's important for people to know. Um, I don't wear my heart on my sleeve. I don't, I, you know, I didn't post it all over social media, um, but it was important for people to know. And then November the 21st last year, you were back in Liverpool. Tell us about that appointment. Um, that was to see the consultant after my, excuse me, that's no, but there's nothing worse, is that? That always happens, doesn't it? I when know. you start speaking, you, start you get the frog in your Let's throat. Let's put you on yeah, radio yeah, I know. and then you get the cough. I know, it's Sorry. always like um, that. <laughs> I was back for um, the results from my second lot of surgery and um, I received the fantastic news that I was all clear. Wow. So I burst out crying, of course. Which is an incredibly short space of time, isn't it? From the fact that you were diagnosed in July and then you received the all clear in November. Yeah, yeah. I, it, incredible. And I can only put it down to the expertise of the consultants and surgeons. You know, they were brilliant. I just I just want to bring up one thing because I was so impressed with this. What I don't think you know, Beth, is, or you may know this, Alison actually was conscious through the surgeries. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Was that a, a choice that you yeah. made? Yeah. Wow. I, in previous surgery I'd had at Nobles, I have, apparently I have a very small airway. <clears throat> so it's difficult for intubation. So they they gave me the choice. They said, you know, we we can give you a general anaesthetic, um, or you can just have a spinal. I said, oh, I'll stay awake. It's great. How She's... long was the operation? First one was um, about two and a half hours, and the second one was about four hours. Four hours, and I mean, how? Aware are you of what's going on? Absolutely. Oh uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, you can't, obviously you can't feel anything, but you can hear. You can hear cutting and cauterizing. And... Wow. And she's, she's saying this with a smile on her face because she described herself when she was telling me this as being quite a nosy person. So she... Oh, I love to see what's going on. <laughs> I love it. But I suppose that gives you an element of control, which some people find really difficult, actually. They go through surgery and they are knocked out. You, that idea that you have no idea what has happened. Well, you know, normally, you know, you, you're in the anaesthetic room and you fall asleep and then you wake up in recovery and that's it. You, and you have no idea what goes on. Wow. So, I mean, we're looking at a, a new year, certainly a new start for you, Alison. What would you say that facing such a serious illness has taught you about life in general? To make the most of it, definitely. Um, you know, don't don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today. Listen to your own body as well. You know, take note of any changes and go and see somebody. The Nation Station. Radio. Another year has passed and it's December 31st. 
I've eaten so much rubbish that I think I'm fit to burst. Staying up till midnight for the young ones is a treat. But when you're in your fifties, it's considered quite a feat. My New Year's resolutions see me full of good intention. I have so many vices, quite a few I couldn't mention. Last year I gave up gambling, fed up of taking chances. The odds were three to one, it would be good for my finances. I need to eat more healthily, my clothes are rather tight. But first I've cleared the cupboards, eating everything in sight. I set a goal last year to lose a half a stone or so. Ah well, it could be worse. I've only got a stone to go. Perhaps I should try jogging as a form of exercise. But January's so cold and wet, I don't think that it's wise. So once a week, I'll bake a cake and ask my friends to dinner. By March, they'll all be fat and then I'm bound to look much thinner. I know a bloke who thought he'd give the dating game a go. He joined a cut-price agency. He found them at Tesco. His New Year's resolution was to get himself a wife. He should have been more careful, cos he got a bag for life. So, six weeks down the line, I've broken every resolution. I just don't have the willpower, I've come to the conclusion. My valentine bought chocolate, he's such a thoughtful gent. I'll wait until next month, and then I'll give it up for Lent. carried on playing these songs back to back it would take us about a week to get through them all you've had the most ridiculous number of hits well, the following week i wrote even more <laughs> that was, so those took you about a day and a half did they <laughs> <laughs> yes how, total 
How long does it take then to craft a hit song? Well, the main bones of a hit song happen in an hour or two, really, because you know you've got something really magic very, very quickly. Then the hard work begins. <laughs> then you've got to make things work and make things fall into place. And that can take, uh, that can take a long time. So is there a sort of formula? I mean, I know obviously, it, well, it took you an entire book to write how to write a hit song, but, but is there a sort of formula that you can stick by? So could you learn how to craft a hit song? Um, no, you can, you, can, you can get a lot of uh, things, you, you can get a lot of hints for um, saving time, not having to waste your time going up the wrong, wrong way. But really, and everybody who says it's not inspiration, it's perspiration that's rubbish it's 99% inspiration because you can come in and start writing one day and you can go on and on and nothing will happen another time you'll come in and you'll crack a good example Les Reed and Barry Mason who wrote The Last Waltz um, um, a whole load of songs in one of Delilah they they and they had the bare bones of each one of those within about two hours oh, gosh. and then they came back later and developed them into songs but that bit of inspiration happened in a very very short time because I've heard people say in, in other interviews talking about songs that some people feel like that the, the sort of the, the best songs just sort of fall onto your lap yes that they just sort of drop from somewhere. Has that happened with you? Yeah, well, they do. Uh, and w what you're doing really is you're, it's a little bit like a jazz musician. And you've got a basic, um, you, you're, you're playing around with uh, tunes and things, and you're improvising. And as you improvise, and when you're writing songs, you're, I'm trying to do it, I'm trying to listen to what I'm writing as if I were a third party. I want to, I want to hear that for the first time, even though it's coming from me. And when you do that, you you then won't settle for anything less than something really catchy. Mm -hmm. And you just throw the stuff away. You end up throwing most of this stuff away because it's just not good enough. And unless you're realistic with what you're doing, you're going to have a catalogue full of old draggy stuff. And uh, so this way it concentrates, it concentrates what you're doing. Have any of your more successful songs surprised you at how successful they've been? Well, Down Came the Rain uh, certainly, certainly did that because that was written as a comedy, even though there's not a funny line in it, it was written as a comedy performance of an idea. And um, in Italy, somebody said, hey, that is a very nice tune. And, they, and it was a big group at the time called I Giganti. And they copied it. They no, they they covered it, and uh, they did a completely straight ballad, a passionate ballad based on that song. Uh, and uh, later, many many years, and and it went to number one and sold three hundred and sixty thousand copies or something in Italy. And some years later, I suddenly started getting money from Italy, better money than I'd ever had. And it took me time to find out why. Um, and it was a, an artist called Mina, who was a very, very big star in Italy. And she'd covered it on an album. And it, was, it took off. And everybody started covering it. So I've now got loads. And it's one of my biggest earners, even though it only went to number, I don't know, seven over here or something like that. Silly. 17. Who knows? And that must be really satisfying <laughs> for you, because it was also one that you performed. 
Yes. Well, it was that wasn't the reason it was satisfying. It was satisfying because of the money it made. <laughs> <laughs> well said, that man. It it does beg the question, though, nowadays, as to, as to whether or not songwriters can ever really have that same sort of success because it's such a different industry now, isn't it? Very different. Very different to compare. It's very, very different. Mm. Um, so different, I couldn't even tell you what the difference is. You know what I mean? Because it's just... There were there was a bunch of us in those days. There were you know people like Les Reed, Barry Mason, Roger Greenaway, Roger Cook, uh, Tony McCauley, and we are all still friends actually. Um, uh, but but we were all sort of bespoke songwriters. We would write for an artist with an artist in mind. Usually the artist happened to be at number one in the charts because we knew if we got somebody who was number one in the charts and we wrote their next single, we had a much better chance of making it. And that's part of the trick, of course. So the songs you'll find that written by people like me at that time were written for very often for somebody else completely. <laughs> you know, I wrote uh, You Were Made For Me with, with uh, The Searchers in mind. And they turned it down and it went to Freddie and the Dreamers and, you know, helped their career instead, you know. And that's the thing, that must have been a wonderful thing to know, that you essentially launched the careers of a number of, of bands that became hugely successful. Mm. Well, a good thing was Tom Jones, who I uh, never recorded any of my songs, and Gordon Mills, his manager, used to turn everything down that I ever approached him with. Um not through anything personal, he just didn't see them, you know. And so all those songs, I later later went to Tony Christie. We found Tony Christie and started producing him with all the songs that Tom Jones turned down. <laughs> and if you listen to Tony Christie, you can hear why. And not, not why he turned them down, but why Tony Christie became, uh, you know, used those songs. So. Uh-huh. Absolutely. <laughs> Huge hits they were as well. And he was a terrific singer. Fabulous voice, too. Yeah. And yeah. that was when you sort of launched into producing as well. So we'll talk about that a little mm. bit later. But, but before we go to the break, Mitch, I, we've just heard a selection of, of just a few of your hit songs there. Is there any one of them that you're sort of more proud of than the others or one that you are, are sort of particularly more fond of? Yes, I've always got a soft spot for the first number one. You know, I think you'll find most songwriters say that, which was How Do You Do It by Jerry and the Pacemakers. And that launched it. Um, and then, of course, because it was How Do You Do It by Jerry and the Pacemakers, and, the, and in fact, the Beatles recorded it first. Um, and then Jerry and the pacemaker, and and I turned that down, and they turned me down at the same time. So they so, didn't so want another. Explain song. that you you didn't like what they'd done with it. Is That's that... right, and I felt that they messed it up purposely, because they were the Beatles. Who do they think they are, Lennon and McCartney? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I really felt that they sort of didn't put their best into it. Let's put it that way, and they've admitted admitted to that ever since. You know. Um, uh, and and you can't blame them. We're talking about John Lennon and Paul McCartney, you know. But um, uh, so anyway, they recorded it because George Martin said, look, when you can write a song as good as this, I'll record it until then. This is what you'll do, which I am embarrassed about thinking even now. And uh, so Brian Epstein thought the song was pretty good anyway. And he asked me if I would let Jerry and the Pacemakers record it. Uh, who I'd never heard of either, <laughs> uh, but they uh, Jerry's version was unbelievably good. 
So when you heard his version, did you know immediately that's it? Yeah, because I refused to sign a publishing contract based on the Beatles record. And then when they played me George uh, uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers version, I was delighted. Where do I sign? I was very, very happy with that. Extraordinary. Mm. And I'm intrigued to know, though, from from that that point that you know that was obviously your first hit, first number one. Mm. How do you get to that point with those people? Because it, you didn't come from a background of songwriters who were in the industry, mm. so people can write amazing songs. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to end up in the right place and become hits. How did you do it? To borrow your own lyric. Oh yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, just, I, I suppose. Listening to, I mean, when I started writing songs, I was just writing songs. And, you know, the fact that you've finished a song doesn't mean it's going to make any money. And if it doesn't make money, you've got no career. So um, I eventually, somebody, you know, a few people gave me advice. I went to publishers and they said, yeah, it's all right. It's a very nice song. Very, very well written and all the rest of it. But uh, who cares about it? I said, you know, something you're right. They said, listen to more of what's being played and the ones that are hits. And that was the best advice, really. Listen to the successful ones. Try to work out why and why they do better than others. So that helped a lot. And then I just kept, kept going, you know. And I was in, in one year, I'd had my first number one.